Open up your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Hebrews. We're coming back once again to look at chapter 8, and I did give you a uh, fair warning that we're going to park it in chapter 8 for quite a while. And the reason for that, I hope, has been evident thus far. I believe this is our third message uh, in chapter 8, dealing specifically with verses 7 through 13, because of the theological significance of what the inspired writer is doing and attempting to teach us as Christ's church. And so we welcome, do we not, the opportunity to come to God's Word with our spades and our shovels to to learn and to grow uh, and to rightly handle the Word of God. With that said, let's look together here at chapter 8. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we'll come back and deal specifically with verses 7 through 13. The Word of God says, Now of these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Well, beloved, this week, many, and perhaps many of you, are remembering the great and the glorious work which our God brought about during the Protestant Reformation. August 31st, you all know, is Reformation Day, and Protestants have for centuries celebrated this great, remarkable event that took place 
in redemptive history. This was a time period where the truth of God had been in many ways lost and was no longer accessible to the common man. I think in our consideration of great times of revivals, great periods of reformation, it would be right to say that the greatest of all reformations, the greatest of all revivals in redemptive history was the arrival of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Immaculate Incarnation of the Messiah. At the time of Christ's Immaculate Incarnation, the truth of God's law had been horribly misrepresented by all the religious leaders of the day, so much so that it had become confused, it had become perverted, and the common man could no longer be guided or blessed by that word. However, with the arrival of Jesus, a long-awaited new beginning had begun. This is why Jesus says himself in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the good news. The good news of the gospel, which Jesus said is at hand, after a long time had been fulfilled, was the reality of what all the prophets had been pointing to in prior centuries. And this brings us right to our text today in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. We have been considering how, and we've been considering why, the inspired writer of Hebrews inserts the Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 31, particularly word for word, verses 31 through 34, in his sermonic letter at this point. Because this letter, remember, for all practical purposes, was intended to aid these first century Christians who were converted out of Judaism to hold fast the confession of their hope in the good news without wavering until the end. Hebrews 10.23. It's the whole practical point of this letter. Now we have purposefully taken several Lord's Day to ensure we are correctly interpreting the use and the meaning of this prophecy in Hebrews 8. And this is what we have established thus far at this point, of trying to understand why he's purposely placing it in his sermon, in the argument he's building, to hopefully encourage them, without wavering, stick to the good news unto the end. This is what we've accomplished thus far for those who have been tracking along. First of all, we discovered that there was a need for a second, a better, and new covenant. Because the old one, if you recall, was with fault. It was, with def- it was defective. Okay, So we've established that there was a need. The defect was namely that it could not provide the legal framework to permanently reconcile a man to God. Nor could it provide a circumcised heart. It was defective. The second thing we've learned thus far of what's being accomplished with using Jeremiah 31 here in Hebrews chapter 8 is that when we considered a couple weeks ago the writings of Micah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, it was clear to us that the old covenant was expected by all of those prophets to eventually recede into the background to, as our text said today, vanish away and be replaced by a superior covenant. This is what we've accomplished so far. It was defective, the old one. There was a need for a new one or a superior one. All of the Old Testament prophets, 
We're expecting it to recede and to vanish away and eventually be replaced, entirely replaced, by a second better covenant. Now, having established these two truths regarding the relationship of the first covenant with the new covenant, you and I may be tempted, and I almost was until I stopped myself, to move right on in our understanding of the prophecy, as is recorded in Hebrews chapter 8, to begin to examine the four particular and distinct blessings that are said to be associated with this new covenant. Look at your Bibles there. You see them. What are the four distinct blessings associated with the new covenant? God's law would be written on their minds and their hearts. There will be intimate fellowship with God. And there will be universal knowledge of God. There will be no need for me to tell you know the Lord, to evangelize you, you know the Lord. And there is full and final forgiveness of sin. It's very tempting at this point, having settled those two uh, previous understandings of why he's using Jeremiah, to move right on into this. However, beloved, we are prevented, at least today, I believe, from doing this, unless the Lord shows me something else. We're prevented from doing that and moving on to those points because there's something that we have not yet dealt with. And perhaps you have been thinking it but you just haven't expressed it to me. We have, up until this point, been interacting with this Old Testament prophecy from Jeremiah 31 with a presumption. I have been preaching it with a presumption that it is meant for you as a Christian. This is My applications have been that way. Uh, Many of my interpretations have, have been that way. I've been using it and applying it to you as a Christian, but not just any Christian. I've been applying it to you who all in this room right now, unless there's a surprise I don't know about, are Gentile Christians. But have we been entirely correct in doing that? I mean, just notice with me in the text. The text says that the new covenant that was established and announced in Jeremiah 31... Who's it to? Israel and Judah. These are descendants of Abraham. And you probably have been thinking, you know, I've been waiting. Is this really for us? Because it says right there in the text. I mean, it does say that right on the surface. So this forces us to just note a couple of things right now. The prophecy in its original context was given distinctively to Jewish people, that is, physical descendants of Abraham. And then think about this as well, beloved. Secondly, it is notable, and we can't minimize it, the original audience that this letter was written to, they were ethnically Jews, weren't they? Who had come out of Judaism. So it is interesting, Jeremiah 31 says the new covenant is for Israel and Judah, and it is also interesting that this letter specifically be written into a Christian community who were ethnically Jews, descendants of Abraham. So then, I believe if we are going to be Bereans, before moving forward and understanding the associated blessings of this new, better second covenant, we must resolve the question, which is the title of my sermon today, who is the new covenant in this text intended for to begin with? Is it intended for the nation of Israel or is it intended for the Christian church? Now, I know that most of you who've been participating in this study of Hebrews up to this point are perhaps shocked that even such a question has to be asked or considered. 
However, there's not a few in the larger evangelical community that will interpret the new covenant promise that you and I have been studying, which is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, as not being applied to the Christian church. A very large portion of the visible evangelical community. So then, the question that we must answer at this point, does in fact this passage teach that the new covenant is for the Christian church? If so, how does it relate to us? Is the new or the second or the better covenant a reality and a fulfillment in the Christian church? This question is particularly crucial because, as I said, it is denied by an important and a very influential segment of evangelical Christianity. I'm not talking about just some fringe or liberal section of the visible evangelical community. I'm talking about influential personalities that run the whole spectrum of the visible evangelical church, from conservative men to charismatic preachers. They deny that Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, New Covenant fulfillment is found in the New Testament church. They say it is for Israel. So I want us, as you see in your sermon notes, to consider this question. And allow as faithful reforming Protestants who hold to one of the fundamental principles of the Protestant Reformation, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture to get to our settled understanding. And I have three headings I'd like for us to operate under while answering this question. The first is, it's denial. It's denial. So let's look at it's denial. The promise of the new covenant does not apply to the church. Where did such a notion of denial even begin? That Jeremiah 31, as used in Hebrews 8, does not apply to the church. Who started this line of thinking? The denial that the new covenant is fulfilled and realized in the church of Christ comes from a movement that dominates much of American Christianity. That movement or that system of interpreting the Bible is commonly known as dispensationalism. Now, it perhaps was most, you could do a whole history class on where this came from, when it started, how was it popularized, but it was most popularized and most catalyzed within the American churches because of one piece of literature that was produced that got put into the hands of all the churches called the Schofield Reference Bible. And guess what? This is my very first Bible after I was converted to Christianity. Now you can't see it because the spine's ripped off, so let me pull it out. I use it as a bookmark now. It is a wide margin black letter Schofield study Bible. And so it's a study Bible. It has interpretive notes and in the columns and in, in the footers and things of that nature for key passages. And so this system of interpretation known as dispensation that denies Jeremiah 31 is realized and fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ was popularized and catalyzed and became into the life of the visible evangelical church largely by that Bible. And when I was ordained into the ministry, and I'm not saying this disparagingly, I'm just trying to give you an idea how did this happen, I was told that really just this Bible with the study notes 
and, and prayer and, and, and you know, studying the scriptures is really all that I needed. And so you see those interpretive notes in that study Bible are going to guide my understanding and my framework of how to interpret the Bible. This system that we just described as dispensationalism, in its classic or foundational statement as a system, it vehemently denies that the new covenant is fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. I think this can be said also in a very large degree to modifications of this system, sometimes called progressive dispensationalism. But at some point, all of them have to hold that position that Jeremiah 31 is not for the church. Now, am I just mischaracterizing or misrepresenting their position that they deny this? I think I can simply prove it to you by quoting their teachers. Listen, for instance, this line of thought coming from J. Dwight Pentecost in his classical work on dispensational end-time views called Things to Come. He says the following, quote, The new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 must and can be fulfilled only by the nation of Israel, not the church. The covenant stands as yet unfulfilled and awaits a future literal millennial fulfillment. Did you hear that? Jeremiah 31 can't be fulfilled by the church. Another former professor, Charles Ryrie, states the same thought a little bit in every way. He says the new covenant is not only future, it's not realized, fulfilled in the church, but it's millennial. I'll skip another uh, quote here, but uh, it makes it clear, the same thought. And so we have to take note here, at least at this point, that such a denial of the new covenant being fulfilled by the church is an important part of the dispensational hermeneutic interpretation of Scripture, especially as it relates to a future millennial period. Correct? Professor Ryrie asserts that this key distinction of dispensational premillennialism, especially the new covenant not being fulfilled by the church, this system of interpretation has essentials to it in order for it to be consistent. And listen to one of the essentials of dispensational premillennialism. He says, A dispensationalist always keeps Israel and the church distinct from one another. A man who fails to distinguish the nation of Israel and the church will inevitably not hold to dispensational distinctions. So that's a key to that interpretive system. He emphasizes elsewhere if the church is fulfilling Israel's promises as contained in the New Covenant or anywhere in Scripture, listen to what he says, then future premillennialism is condemned. Why is that? Because that's the only reason for the premillennial future system is unfulfilled covenant obligations to Israel being fulfilled in the future. So if you acknowledge that Hebrews 8 is fulfilling and being realized in the Christian church as a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, what's left for the Jews in the future? There's nothing. So he is absolutely right. Their whole position of this future realization of ethnic Jews coming into a covenant with God as described in Jeremiah 31 and reiterated in Hebrews 8, it all comes crashing down. Not only does dispensational premillennialism deny that the church fulfills the new covenant, it must deny it. Right? Or it, or it collapses. 
This conclusion is obvious even to those who hold to its hermeneutical interpretive system. This is why they hold the reins. This is why they will never ever allow any covenant promise mentioned in the Old Testament to ever be applied to the Christian church and especially Jeremiah 31. I think that's why um, in a practical way, what's the impact practically? I think that's why you will very rarely hear the book of Hebrews exegetically verse by verse taught by a pastor who holds or a preacher that holds to this position. Um, because they feel as though there's, there's nothing really there for the Christian church. You'll hear a totally different type of preaching from it. It will be all kind of hypothetical. There will be really no substance or meat for you as a Christian in the Christian church from the word of God, from the book of Hebrews, because after all, it is written to Jews, right? Not to Gentiles in the Christian church. So it is denied, and that's the basis of its denial. But what about its defense? Because I've been advocating for, and I have been preaching that, yeah, this is... Uh, as I'm reading it and we've been studying chapter 1 through chapter 7, even coming in chapter 8, you would have noticed the tense of the Greek language. Um, uh, he has now obtained a more excellent ministry. It's, it's all present tense. I've been preaching as if it's literally fulfilled and the old one's vanishing away. But we have to defend this, brothers and sisters. We have to defend that the promise of the new covenant does apply to the church. We move to our second heading. I give you some scriptures there that we'll be turning to. And you know what? I'll use the old Schofield Study Bible to flip to them. How about that? Let's, uh, let's dismantle these claims of dispensationalism using the Schofield Study Bible. And I'm not trying to be clever here. I didn't plan on doing this, but it was just handy and I can flip through it, so I don't want to be misunderstood. The defense of our premise that in fact the new covenant is prophesied in Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled in and by the church, I don't believe is hard or it's complicated to demonstrate. But to understand it, we simply have to make use of Jeremiah 31 in the New Testament, how is it used in the New Testament, and we will come to an understanding very simply to see that Jeremiah 31, i.e. the New Covenant promise, is fulfilled, it is actualized, it is realized by the Christian church. And so in order to do this, I want to go to three verses or three passages in the Bible with you, and then we have a couple observations from the book of Hebrews. I kind of wrestled of how many passages we go to Hebrews because I don't want to take away my material from when I get there in future chapters. So I'm just going to make some observations from the book of Hebrews and not get into it too deep. Turn with me, please, to their first scripture to demonstrate that the new covenant is realized, it is fulfilled, and it is for us as the church. Luke 22:20. 20. Luke 22:20. 20. This is the Lord instituting a new ordinance, that is, a new law. This is very significant in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. And he comes to chapter 22, verse 19, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after the supper saying, this cup is 
the New Testament, the New Covenant, in my blood, which is shed for you. In this verse, beloved, Jesus said, this cup, look at your Bibles, which is poured out, is poured out for who? For you. And it is the cup being described as the New Covenant in His blood. This is the last supper eaten by Jesus and His apostles in which the Lord is instituting a new law to be followed, a new law to be understood. The apostles, according to Ephesians 2.20, were what? The foundation of the church, Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And Jesus here in this text, He's speaking of this cup that He is sharing with His apostles as the new covenant in His blood. That is to say, this cup is an outward symbol of what I am instituting now, the new covenant with my blood, and when you drink of this cup, you are participating in that new covenant. Do you see that? Here, I raise it up. My, this represents the new covenant. In my blood, it will require something. They got that. They, they were Jewish. Oh, okay. He's talking about the new covenant. Oh, yes. And you can't have a covenant without the shedding of blood, a sacrifice, a mediator, you know, etc., etc. He's saying, this is the new covenant of my blood. And then he hands them the cup. You're participating in it. You now actually, it's being realized right now in our day and age, he's saying to his apostles. For these apostles who were intimately familiar with the new covenant prophecies, this is exactly how they would have understood our Lord at this very significant event during his earthly ministry. Everything is changing. Everything is being turned upside down now. The new covenant that had been prophesied by Micah, by Jeremiah, by Isaiah, by Ezekiel. It's happening now. Now they didn't understand all the details. That's what the book of Acts is demonstrating. There were some still things that they were figuring out in the transition of the old covenant to the new covenant. Where do the Gentiles fit into this? And you know, that's why Paul's ministry is coming on the scene. And he's trying to help them to work it out and fully comprehend the extent and the application of the realized new covenant. But they would have understood, beloved that they were participating in and it was being fulfilled then with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is picked up elsewhere at this point in 1 Corinthians. You see it in your sermon notes. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. This Bible is so marked up I can hardly even read it. Okay, here it is. Start with verse 23. We're going to be at this passage later on in our service. I have received the Lord that which also I deliver unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and he said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says here to the Corinthian church, in the same way that he took the cup also after the supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And notice, do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is a definitive passage on the subject of the Lord's Supper. In the New Testament, it's demonstrating for us that the events that we just read in history in Luke 22:20, 20, they were intended 
to institute a continuing ordinance, a continuing remembrance. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is doing for us. It's showing us that what the Lord said and did in Luke 22 is to be a perpetual remember, remember for those who come after the apostles that they also, every time they partake of the cup, partake of the bread, are participants in the new covenant and recipients of the new covenant. So it wasn't just the first century Jews and they all the first all the guys who were initially converted they were Jewish. Amen. They were descendants of Abraham. That's who this church is in the letter of Hebrews being addressed. They were Jewish. Of course they were. But the new covenant is realized and continually that realization that fulfillment is being declared every time that cup is partaken of by the recipients of the new covenant. This is what 1 Corinthians 11.25 is showing us. It's a perpetual, a continual thing that we are obligated to do to declare the new covenant has been instituted, that we are part of it, and we have procured the blessings of it, which we'll get to next week. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. Do we begin to commend ourselves? Or need we as some other others? Epistles of condemnation to you or letters of condemnation from you? Ye are our epistle. What does he mean by this? Well, he says, written in our hearts known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink. Well, what's he mean? Well, he tells you what he means. But with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in tables of the heart. And as such trust have we through Christ to Godward, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the new covenant. See it? Not of the letter. This is the difference of the new covenant, right? This is what we've been learning, and we will learn more of. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The reference of this passage to the new covenant, which Jeremiah 31 is in his mind. He's a Jew inspired by the Spirit using the Scriptures to demonstrate Jesus is the Messiah. And he's using this terminology that he's a minister of the new covenant. Where did he get that from? He got it from Jeremiah and the other Old Testament prophets. So this reference to Jeremiah cannot be evaded. It cannot be minimized in demonstrating the defense that the new covenant is for the Christian church. It is realized and fulfilled through the ministry of the apostles by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. And it's for you. And it's for me today. We learned how God promises to sovereignly write His law on the hearts of His people. And that's exactly what we see in this context taking place. So think about it. For our purposes under this current heading, carefully consider 
that here are Gentile Corinthians who are having by God's sovereign spirit his law, not by the letter, but by his spirit written upon their heart. Well, isn't that a description of what is going to be experienced by participants in the new covenant? But wait a minute, they're not Jews, they're Gentiles. Of course they're Gentiles. And that's because the new covenant is being realized. It has been inaugurated. These Gentile Corinthians were having, by God's Spirit, true conversion. Now we go to Hebrews, where we currently are. We go to the book of Hebrews. Let's go back to Hebrews 8. The new covenant and Jeremiah 31, the prophecy, they have their most concentrated New Testament exposition in this study of the book of Hebrews. And it's been argued that this letter and its references to the new covenant are irrelevant by some for the church, as I mentioned earlier. And this is damaging. It's, it's, it's a humongous error to, to make. And it strikes you, I think at least it does me, of why it's so prevalent. And I will just say, as I'm holding my very first Bible, my Schofield Bible, beloved, this is just all I knew. I was given this Bible and told it's, it's good, it's faithful, study it. But I never got down into the trenches myself. And it wasn't until I began to be confronted with some of the errors of it that I began to investigate and see I had the wool pulled over my eyes. That I was entirely wrong. I wasn't connecting these dots. And I didn't, by tradition, raise up and rear up a stiff neck and say, no, I'm not going to admit I'm wrong and, 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 and clinch with a tight fist my Schofield reference Bible. No, with grace and humility, by God's truth written upon my heart, seeking to want to know and be led by the truth of God's Word, I humbled myself to what it said and changed my position. Going back to the concern that, you know, the Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, it's made much of this by those who want to deny the new covenant is for us. They want to make much of the fact that it's written to a Jewish context in a Jewish community. And to this, I would reply, I reply, yes, it is. I admit that. We have to admit that. That most of those to whom the Hebrews was originally addressed, they were, by their ethnicity, Jewish. They were descendants of Abraham. That does not, however, as we're coming to Hebrews now, to consider a couple things, it doesn't, however, subtract from the significance of this letter for us as the Christian church. And here's three reasons I want to give you to answer that concern that some may have. As maybe you've got family members or you listen to one of your you know, uh, favorite podcasts or, or internet sermons or something, right? And, and this point's made that, well, you, you can't minimize the fact that Hebrews is written to a Jewish context. It's written into that sort of context. Don't, be, don't minimize that. Well, of course, we do not minimize that. But here's why I still think it fails to disprove that the new covenant is for the church, brothers and sisters. The first reason is this. It's part of the New Testament. It is part of our New Testament Bibles as Christ's church. After the close of the Old Testament time period, it is presenting the whole book of Hebrews, what? Privileges and responsibilities. In the New Testament. Would we ever fall into the category of saying, well, those privileges, Sister Maria, that's for just the national Israel. 
Those promises are just for national Israel. The moment we use that sort of interpretative method, we're guilty of overturning what the inspired Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, specifically verses 11 through 22, that God has tore down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. We are all in the same family. There is not particular promises and particular responsibilities to one set of God's people than another. And so I would say, dear friend, while I acknowledge that the context is largely a Jewish context that is being written into, the privileges and the responsibilities, therefore, they are for us all. And to say it's just for one group of people, well, you're going to fall into a whole heap of a mess trying to do that for the rest of the New Testament, you see. There's another reason also that underscores this. Not only was it written to Jews, why we admit that, but consider this, it was written to not just any Jews, it was written to Christian Jews, right? It was written, we can't, why we admit and we say yes, we have to recognize part of the argument of denying the new covenant is that it was written to Jews. The defense would be, oh dear friend, they weren't just any Jews. They were converted Jews just like the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John. In fact, all, like I said before, all the New Testament believers, the first ones that were converted were Jewish. They were Christian. They came out of Judaism. They received the new covenant blessings. They received the good news of the new covenant promises. That has to be given ample weight as well. But third, notice that they were members of a Christian church. So in defense of the new covenant being for the Christian church, we see from Hebrews 13, 17, they are given this warning, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch, they care for your souls. So this is a plain reference to a local community, a local church where you have members and you have pastors. And so here, the book of Hebrews is being written to Christians who secondary were ethnic Jews and who were Christians organized in a local Christian church. So I hope at least with just those logical deductions, you would agree with me. There's no way we can say the book of Hebrews is intended for anyone other than Christians in the local Christian church. Now in the book of Hebrews that we've studied so far from chapter 7 up until where we're at today, in part of chapter 8, We have established, haven't we, that Jesus is a superior high priest and mediator of the new second and better covenant. And by it, he is using, and by it, the the, the use of Jeremiah 31, at this point in his sermonic letter, what he's doing is he's implying, at least at minimum, that Jesus is mediating this covenant now. At minimum, on the surface, you have to see that. Now, Lord willing, in the coming sermons, we'll learn from Hebrews 9, 14 and 15. Let's turn there real quick. Hebrews 9, 14 14 and 15. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause... He is, He is, He is the mediator of the new covenant. Now I'm purposely, you're looking at your Bibles as a testament, I'm purposely using the Greek word covenant 
for, to, to prove the point. I'm, I'm not reinterpreting your Bibles. I'm not, changing, I'm not trying to pull a fast on you. Okay? And for this cause, He is the mediator of the new covenant and by means of death for the redemption of His transgressions. Or for the transgressions, not His. For the transgressions that were under the first testament, the first covenant, they which were called, which were called, we'll get to that in the future, might receive the promise of the internal inheritance. We're seeing here in Hebrews 9.15 that these covenant recipients are described as those who are being called. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The recipients of that covenant are the ones that are called. And the New Testament here in this text is clearly teaching us that God is calling people both at this time, ethnically Jews, and also, A.J. reading Acts 20, Gentiles, He's calling them into the New Covenant by the power of His Sovereign Spirit. And so then, if you, according to Hebrews 9, 14 and 15, have been called, you have felt the drawing of the power of the Holy Spirit convincing you your worthiness of condemnation and guilt because of your own sins, i.e. people who you know, uh, are, are, are condemned under the law of God, if you've received awareness of that and you've been drawn to the beauty and the glory of the cross and only by it and through it you can be saved, you have been called and you now are what? In the new covenant. An objection to this, what I just said, the dispensational premillennialist argues that the writer of Hebrews never intended to teach that Israel's new covenant is operative right now. Despite what 9, 14, and 15 says. Going back to Dwight Pentecost, specifically here in the context of Hebrews, as in Hebrews 8, that promise of Jeremiah is quoted only to prove that the old covenant, that is the Mosaic, was temporary from its inception and Israel never could trust in that. It had always intended to be temporary. They had to look forward to that which would be eternal. So is the case in Hebrews 10.16. The passage of Jeremiah is quoted not to state what is promised there is now effectual, but rather that the old covenant was temporary and ineffectual and anticipating that of a new future covenant that would be permanent and would be effectual in its working. He goes on to say, it is a misrepresentation of the thinking of the writer to the Hebrews to affirm that he teaches that Israel's new covenant is now operative in the church. Okay, well, you know, what do you do with this kind of stuff? We just read Hebrews 9. We've been in Hebrews chapters 1 through 8. I mean, you know, go back and list all the sermons. The reading just briefly, Hebrews 9, 14 to 15. In response to that, let's go to Hebrews 10, 10, 19. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 19. I'll move up to verse 9. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He take away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we, the testament, by the which will, covenant, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That happens. 
That's not future. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, the Lord Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, he's already been establishing this, he had offered one sacrifice for sins. Brother Martin preached from this. One sacrifice for sins forever. And he sat down on the right hand of God. It's a done deal. He's accomplished it, the meteor of the new covenant. Moving on. From henceforth, okay, moving forward, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, reciting the Old Testament psalm again. All of this stuff, all this Old Testament language is coming in and it's being, it's screaming off the page for us. It's being fulfilled, being realized through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ and it's being completed in His church. Verse 14, For by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. There's the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 fulfillment. The Holy Ghost is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, here's a concluding statement, brethren, having therefore, having these things, possessing these things, not out of our own works, not of our own righteousness. How? Through the mediator of the Lord Jesus Christ of the new covenant. This wonderful summary statement in response to such statements that we just read from Dwight Pentecost. Having therefore, brethren, boldness. We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. This outlines how that the part of the new covenant promise as given in Jeremiah 31-34 that God, remember, will no longer remember their sins and their iniquities is fulfilled through the all-sufficient blood of Jesus Christ. The moment Jesus shed His blood, He fulfilled that requirement. And from that is dispensed the blessings by which we know through the power of the Holy Spirit we can call upon God even though we are so ill-deserving as Abba, Father. I have no assurance. I have no grounds of confidence to come to Him in any other covenant arrangement but by the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't come to that knowledge by my own wits. I don't come by that knowledge because being a Christian is cool, it's fun, it makes my life easier. No, I come to it because as the text says, the Holy Ghost bears witness with my soul that I need Him. He doesn't need me. It's through this new covenant realization that His law is written upon my heart and it's being fulfilled. Every time someone is called, whether a Jew or a Gentile, into the covenant family of God. Every New Testament use of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, the outlines of the New Covenant, relates it, the ones we've looked at, we could go to more. It relates it, does it not, to a present fulfillment in the church? But on the contrary, 
There is no justification anywhere in the New Testament for viewing this new covenant as described in Jeremiah 31 as something future or millennial, either in part or in whole. There's no justification in the New Testament. You definitely cannot get it from the passages we just read if you're going to be faithful in what the text is saying. There is, on the other hand, every reason to see it as the covenant, the new covenant of the church engaged right now and will remain so until the end of this age before the mediator of that covenant returns. You have it in your notes before we go into our last heading. It would be helpful to remember what we've learned just by perusing in the defense of the New Testament that the new covenant does apply to the church. These things that we've seen in the text. The Savior of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, is described as the mediator of the new covenant. The apostles of the church, especially after the Lord's Supper, were inaugurated as servants of that new covenant, participants of that new covenant, and ministers of that new covenant, especially when they were sent out. The very beginning, the very beginning of the New Testament church owes its foundations to the blessings of this new covenant. Christ shedding his blood, going out with the commission to preach this good news that there's been a once and for all sacrifice made. Fourthly, the very ordinances that we still practice today, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are visible signs that the new covenant has been accomplished. And thus, we must conclude. Beloved, I don't think we have any choice but to conclude that the new, the second, the better covenant is the covenant that is fulfilled and realized today in the Christian church. But that does not... We can do all that exegetical work by looking at other passages in the Bible. It still does not, moving on to our third heading, remove all of the difficulty of applying the new covenant to the church, does it? It shouldn't. Despite the clarity of the witness of the New Testament that we just considered on this question, a problem may still remain in the minds of some of us. Or to say it another way, Despite all this evidence, there may be still a nagging doubt because the text does say that the new covenant will be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So Pastor Doug, you can go all through the New Testament and you can show us how Jesus, as we just outlined in those points, is the mediator of the new covenant and the apostles were the ministers of the new covenant and the very signs we have are external signs to remind us of our participation in the new covenant, etc., etc. But you can't get around the fact that the text does say it's made to Israel and to Judah. So what do we do with this apparent difficulty? Well, the simple answer to that question is that the church is the true Israel. That's the simple answer. Or to state it more precisely, if the new covenant, as we just consider the New Testament, is being fulfilled, then its fulfillment constitutes, establishes, to use New Testament language, a foundation of a new Israel. Or that is, a true Israel. Ones who are, Abby, receiving the blessings of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied. If the New Testament passages we just looked at, if they do in fact say, yes, Jesus is doing this. Yes, this is being realized now. 
then that fulfillment constitutes at least an acknowledgement that the Old Testament prophecies, whatever they meant, means that the Israel that is benefiting from these new covenant blessings, that are realizing these new covenant blessings, is not the same Israel that we typically would understand in the Old Testament. It has to demonstrate that. Because you can't get away from all those passages we looked at and more to prove that the new covenant is being realized. So, if it's being realized, those to whom it's being realized with is Israel. Is Israel. Such an assertion that I've just made overturns all rules for the previous hermeneutical interpretive lens that we were talking about called dispensationalism, which maintains and it has to maintain a wall of difference, a distinction between the church and Israel. When I just took that step and I said, I, friends, this, these passages in the New Testament which clearly show that the new covenant is being realized, it's being realized with the Gentiles, not only in the Corinthian church, but also in our church even today. When I took that step and I said that then therefore that must constitute that whatever we think about Israel has to be revisited and rethought because by all apparent appearances, it appears as though we are the Israel, that we are the true Israel, that the new covenant was pointing toward and saying it would be fulfilled in. I just demolished, I just broke every rule of those who want to keep the two categories of people in the covenant community of God. They still want to have the Jews separate, future fulfillment, and the Gentiles now here you know, as a time period until that future millennial period comes. So this assertion that I just made cannot be me placing a theological construct upon the Scriptures. I must show you as Bereans, and you must join me as Bereans, to see that what I said is a deduction from the evidence of Scripture by calling you Gentile Christians the true Israel. Because to some, that's a rather outrageous claim. And so let us, under this heading of difficulty admitting it, look at only three passages in the New Testament which proves that the church is the continuation and is the constituted true Israel that is receiving all of the blessings of the new covenant. Go with me to Galatians 3.29. Galatians 3.29. This is a passage or a section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is really dealing with a lot of things that were going on at this time, especially with the uh, early church with regards to what do we do with Gentiles coming into the covenant community? We don't know what to do with them. Look at Galatians 3.29. And of you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Those of you who are united to Christ are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. Look at verse 16. Paul is climaxing his argument here with the assertion that the true seed of Abraham 
is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But that's not all he says. He also says, as we just read in verse 29, those who are in Christ, who are united to Him by faith, are also Abraham's seed. And thus, in some way, we have to interpret this in some way. He's saying we are, in a spiritual sense, Israelites. Abraham were seeds of Abraham. Now, immediately someone will charge you who take that position as over-spiritualizing the text. However, notice we are very careful to say we are only seeds of Abraham because there's a connection with physical Abraham through another who is a physical descendant of Abraham, the seed singular, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not as if we are... Israelites void of any physical connection to Abraham. We are Israelites through the seed promised to Father Abraham, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. No connection with Christ, the physical promised seed of Abraham. No connection to Abraham. You see that? So not only, yes, are we spiritual descendants of Abraham, but beloved, in our connection with the Lord Jesus Christ, we do recognize that by that, we have a connection to Father Abraham. But also, Paul does this in Romans 11. Go to to the book of Romans. I think Galatians is enough, but it's good to know that this is seen all throughout the New Testament, this aspect of re-understanding the true Israel, uh, the spiritual Israel, the Israel that now is receiving our participants in, our citizens of the new covenant. We see in uh, Romans 11, let's begin at 13. The Gentiles are warned. Romans 11:13. I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. Now, now, what's the context here? He's warning them because they were getting a little bit prideful because God was bringing them into the New Covenant community and they were looking their, down their noses at the Jews. That's the context of the warning. He says in verse 14, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, Jews, and might save some of them, for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? He loves his fellow Jews. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. Here's where it gets interesting. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root boasteth of thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not natural branches, take heed lest He also spare not you. 
Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not, still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? Beloved, here Paul likens the people of God very clearly in this illustration. It's a, it's a wonderful illustration to an olive tree. And the root of the olive tree is the covenant promise that God made to the Jewish patriarch. Someday, someday, someday. He's pointing them forward to a realization of doing away with the old covenant and giving them a new one. That's the root was God's covenant promise. Notice here and ask the question, does he plant a new fig tree beside the old one? Does he perhaps plant a second olive tree? Well, the answer is a resounding no, he doesn't do that. This passage plainly teaches us that the same old olive tree continues, but the unbelieving Jews, they were the branches that were broken off, and the new branches, the believing Christians, the believing Gentiles are grafted in. And you may be asking to yourself, well, what's really that relevancy? Dispensationalism in all of its forms argues that the church and Israel are always to be separate and distinct from one another. But from this scripture here alone, you see that the Bible's viewpoint is in stark contradiction to such teachings. It teaches us that the church is not a new or different olive tree, but it has been grafted into the original olive tree and thus it is its believing branches. It's a continuation of God's believing community. It is the true Israel. Briefly, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. We've got to go there. We are God's Israel is what we're demonstrating. The church of Jesus Christ. Those who in the first initial beginnings of the church were Jews and those who subsequently come after them in faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what their nationality, their ethnicity, they are the true Israel of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. Remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. What was the covenants of promise, beloved? Jeremiah 31. Having no hope, you had no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... Ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. There clearly we see, first of all, in this text, brought near to those things from which they were before excluded through the blood of Jesus Christ, namely the covenants of promise, Jeremiah 31. They're brought into that. The translation from being excluded to being included is also repeated in Paul's conclusion in in the passage, verse 19. So then, he says, so then you are no longer strangers. The Gentile fellow believers are now said to be fellow citizens with Israel. 
believing Israel. Paul's point's abundantly clear. Believing Gentiles are now, by the work of Jesus Christ the Messiah, made full citizens of the nation of Israel in every imaginable way. It can lay claim to every new covenant promise made to them throughout any shape or form in the Old Testament period because it's fulfilled through Jesus Christ, their mediator. So the concluding thoughts. The new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, as it's being used, and we've been considering here in Hebrews 8, and as elsewhere in the New Testament, ought to be rightly understood as being fulfilled in the church because the church is the true Israel of God. And we must emphasize, once again, that we're not overly spiritualizing the text, brothers and sisters. We are simply letting the text mean what it plainly says. We don't have to take a square peg and put it through a round hole. We're not forcing these texts through some odd interpretive lens. We're just letting the text say what they say. And it works wonderfully. Complete harmony. To argue that the new covenant promise of Jeremiah is not for the church, listen carefully, is to minimize at best or depreciate at worst the significance and the importance of the church of Jesus Christ in the overall plan of God for this age. The church of Jesus Christ, it is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Dear friends, God has no other age coming. God has no other backup plan in His pocket. He is and has been unfolding no other organization on the face of this earth for this time until the Lord Jesus comes back by which He will spread His kingdom and bring people into this new covenant reality. The church of Jesus Christ is it. With all of her warts, with all of her wrinkles, by God's grace, she will go on and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. The church, as the Apostle Paul says, are the people upon whom the ends of this age has come. Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ is the fruition of God's eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 3.11 And thus, this is why Paul cries out to Christ the new covenant mediator dispensing by the sacrifice of His blood and the power of His Spirit to Him, three, Ephesians 3.21, to be all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. Let us never minimize the importance of Christ's church in exchange for exciting prophetical events that are taking place in the Middle East. Every time someone in Israel sneezes, the the majority of evangelical community gets in an uproar or something. Why? Because they have minimized what Christ is doing in His local church body. Every single one of us in this service today who are about to come to the Lord's Supper are a testimony to the glory and the power of the new covenant being realized. Praise be to Christ. And so when we come now in the subsequent sermons, we can rest confidently 
that we have a right handling of God's word, that the writer of Hebrews at this point of his sermon is purposely placing Jeremiah 31 there because it's being fulfilled. We're part of that fulfillment and we are going to understand the significant four things that are associated with being recipients of this new covenant. And friends, (laughs) let me just add, what a blessing it is when we come to those portions because that old and that first covenant was defective, needed to be replaced. And before we came to the cross of Jesus Christ, we were reminded of it continually by the condemning law that was held over our heads. But praise be to God, that law, as Paul says, was used as a taskmaster to show us its inadequacies to change us and give us a love and want us to want to strive to follow Jesus Christ. And by the power of His Spirit, He circumcised our heart a fulfillment of the new covenant. And that's why you're here today. I hope that's why you're here today. You're not here to appease someone else, to get brownie points, to check off the box that you did the right thing so you can sleep better at night. I pray you're here today because you have tasted, you truly have tasted the blessing of the new covenant where God's love through Jesus Christ has been subscribed to your heart. And you're coming to the table in just a moment to feast upon that continual remembrance that He is yours and you are His by faith alone and Christ alone. Let us close with a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to You, Lord, and we ask You to take the things that we have considered in Thy blessed, sure, certain, preserved, and pure Word and apply them to our hearts. Help us, O God, to be guided as Your people in the day and age we live. Help us, O Lord, from falling into the ditches of despair and doubt. And, O God, help us to be anchored and fixed upon the new covenant reality that those who through the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith and faith alone, Lord, you will never remember their iniquities, their sins no more. Give us, I pray, as we approach your table, a fixed and a certain confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ to the blessing and the honor of his majestic name. We pray all these things. Amen.